In this week's episode, Mr. Benny speaks to the sixth form about the history and development of early modern theatre, beginning with an image of a secured plot of land in London from earlier this year. Which theatre in particular? Yeah. The globe's already been discovered, reconstructed, and so on. The West End, this was in Shoreditch instead, in that kind of area, so much more east. Anyone see it in the news at all? No. It was the discovery, guys, of the Red Lion Theatre on the 10th of June 2020. Now, that was quite a significant discovery because the Red Lion is believed to have been the first theatre, basically, built in the London area, the first purpose-built playhouse. It was dug up by a UCL, by the Institute of Archaeology, uh, Stephen White, who was in charge of the project, said that after nearly 500 years, the remains of the Red Lion Playhouse, which marked the dawn of Elizabethan theatre, may have finally been found. Because the strength of the combined evidence, the archaeological remains of buildings in the right location of the right period seem to match up with characteristics of the playhouse recorded in early documents. So that was an incredibly exciting find, to find the archaeological remains of the Red Lion, had anyone heard of it before at all? No. Okay. So, the reason why I've put that at the start of the PowerPoint is because that's where we're going to begin our journey. 1567, when the Red Lion, the first theatre built around London, was constructed. We're going to come through to 1642, when the theatres in the London area were closed. Very significant date in the middle, 1603. Anyone know... What happened then at all? Any ideas? 1603. Sort of in the middle of this period that we're covering. It's okay if you don't. What I'll do? Pardon? Shakespeare's death, possibly. Any other ideas? What else could be a possible event occurring at that time? It's okay. okay. Construction of the Globe Theatre. Possibly. What I'll do is leave that a mystery for now. I'll leave that a mystery and we can come back to that. So we're starting at 1567, which is during the Elizabethan period. We then come through to 1642, which was the year that the English Civil War began in England. Next one. That way. Nope. Oh, did I go too far? Sorry, I thought I missed the slide, guys. So, before we talk about early modern theatre, let's go back a bit to medieval times and medieval theatre. This is a 19th century source and engraving of a performance of a mystery play. Does anyone know what I mean by a mystery play or a passion play? Any ideas? Is it when Uh, good try. The audience not knowing what the play's going to be a bit of a mystery. I can understand why you might think that. That wasn't actually uh, the actual answer, but good try. Because it's called mystery play after all. Any clues in the picture to suggest what the play might be about? What can you infer from that source about medieval theatre before we look at early modern? What have we got in that image? Have we got a theatre? No. We haven't, have we? What have we got instead? It's like a box stage. Yeah, like a box. Okay, a very small stage. So what does that suggest? There's not a permanent theatre building. It's like a pop-up. It's like a pop-up theatre, exactly. Okay. 
what can you infer from that? It's like a box, like a portable stage. I like that term pop up. What can you infer from that regarding the actors, performers, the companies, if they didn't have a permanent theatre building? They travelled, exactly. So, companies of actors in the medieval period travelled the country performing these passion plays, these mystery plays, which were about what? What's the big clue kind of in there? You've got a cross, okay? You've got actors playing priests or cardinals or bishops. So what were these plays exclusively have been about? Stories from the Bible. Religious stories, exactly. So they performed stories from the Bible. Touring companies, touring groups of actors going around the country performing passion plays, mystery plays to the audience. They were called mystery plays because they were all about the mysteries of life, the mysteries of religion, basically. No theatre building, pop-up theatre, portable travelling theatre, a small company of actors performing mystery plays based on stories from the Bible. Fantastic. Now, the Red Lion, coming back to this, was built by a man called John Brain, who was a businessman. That was the first known attempt to provide a purpose-built playhouse in London for all these different companies. So he was one of a group of men in London at the time who thought, okay, theatre is incredibly popular. Why don't we capitalise on that? Why don't we build you know, these permanent structures, these permanent buildings where these companies can perform to audiences? To us today, that sounds obvious, doesn't it? Because we're so used to venues like that. But back then, it was actually quite a new thing. It was a brand new enterprise. So he had to go with the Red Lion. It didn't quite work though. It had a very, very short lifespan. It only lasted about a year. So the Red Lion wasn't a great success. However, another man came along, another businessman, and that was James Burbage. He was also inspired by the touring companies. He also had the idea of building a permanent theatre. So he had a go, and his enterprise was much, much, much more successful. He was actually John Brain's brother-in-law. So in 1572, he was put in charge of a group of actors called the Leicester's Men, one of the leading factory groups at the time. In 1574, he was one of the first Englishmen to be given a theatrical licence at a time when actors were considered rogues and vagabonds. Not a very good profession to have, weren't particularly esteemed in society, but he was actually given a licence. He was really popular as an actor, very popular performer, so audiences went to see his shows. He drew audiences in. So he had this popularity, and he used that to refine, if you like, John Brain's Red Lion building, his playhouse, and he developed his theatre. And he called it The Theatre. Very simple, basic name to us, but in all seriousness, that was basically the first real successful venue for performances in the London area. The Red Lion had to go, it hadn't really worked. The theatre though, was when the idea of having a permanent building for performances in London come together and everything started to click. It was over in Shoreditch, so it was northeast to the city of London. Now we know it was successful because just one year later, there was a sequel, if you like, okay, a second theatre building called The Curtain. It's believed Romeo and Juliet was probably 
first performed over here, okay, in the curtain. Now, the theatre and its success of the curtain theatres, guys, were northeast to the city of London. So this is a picture from uh, a survey of London, 1598. You've got the old city of London over here, the north side of the River Thames. The theatres, the theatre and the curtain were over here, just outside of the city. Why do you think they may have been just outside of the city rather than being central inside the city? What could the reasons have been? Not enough space. Not enough space, yeah. So being outside the city gave them space. Any other ideas? Hi. Yeah, okay. Cheaper to build a little bit outside and there was more space. Fantastic. Any other ideas why they had to be outside of the city? Who was in control in the city? Any ideas? Pardon? Uh, someone, well, a group, someone linked to the king and queen. Church. Yeah, yeah, you're on the right track. The government, yeah, the city fathers. So, the city fathers were in control of the city of London. Now, they were Puritans, extremely strict, extremely strict Protestants, who basically didn't like any kind of fun, entertainment or leisure, okay? They hated anything that was fun. They believed it corrupted people and distracted people, so they was particularly disapproving of plays and theatres, because they thought that plays distracted people from going to work and to church and so on. They was also worried that plague would spread throughout the city if all these people, like in the previous picture guys, of the theatre, went to them, packed in, watched performances. A, they hated the plays, they thought they were immoral, they was worried that too many people were crowded in the theatres, plague and disease would spread throughout the city of London, so they wanted to get rid of them, okay? Ideally, they wanted the theatres gone completely, but who do you think was a big fan of the theatre? Yes, the Queen, Elizabeth I. The acting companies, over time, began to be sponsored by members of her council, so they could not get rid of them, but what they said was theatres had to be outside of the city. They can't be in, they had to be outside. So that is why they started to initially pop up in areas like Shoreditch. Now, back to James Burbage, guys. He came up with a second plan. The theatre was really successful. His follow-up project, The Curtain, was successful as well. He wanted to move indoors. He wanted to move into an indoor theatre as well, so he could have an indoor space where performances could take place during the winter months. He had his eye on somewhere in Blackfriars. If you have a look at your map on your table, it's just down here. I know it's not the best quality. Yeah. So here you've got here you've got the uh, yeah. That's the medieval. That's the old medieval St Paul's Cathedral, which burnt down the Great Fire of London. Just diagonal to it, you've got the Blackfriars. So in 1596, Burbage paid 600 pounds and he bought part of a monastery and he wanted to use that for an indoor theatre. That was his next plan. Blackfriars was a wealthy neighbourhood so for the company it was a fantastic area to move into to expand their enterprise but the plan backfired. Lots of residents 
signs a petition banning the company from playing now. Why do you think they may have done that? Why do you think these residents of Blackfriars, these wealthy residents, did not want the actors out? Yeah, might bring the area down. Yeah, they didn't want the commercialism, they didn't want the noise, the disruption, the reputation of being associated with actors. So they signed a petition, sorry, we're not having that in Blackfriars, and Burbage's plan did not happen. Now, to us today, that's actually quite interesting because someone else earlier on mentioned uh, the West End, didn't you? So our theatres today, like the, the major theatres, if you like, the most expensive ones, the biggest, are located in the West End. Back then, it was a bit different. They did not want a theatre of any sort in their area. So that was a no-go for Burbage at that time. Okay, moving on. Philip Henslow. So we've looked at James Burbage, we've looked at John Brain. The next person, the next key character, thanks sir, in the story is Philip Henslow. Now there are no known portraits of Henslow, so that is a photograph of course of the actor Geoffrey Rush, who plays Shakespeare in love. Cheers sir. Now he is regarded as the most important theatre proprietor and manager of the Elizabethan age. He was another businessman who was inspired by the success of the theatre and the curtain. Burbage is working in Shoreditch, he thought, I'm going to have some of that, I'm going to move into the theatre business, and he did. He purchased a property known as the Little Rose in 1584, and he built his theatre, okay? But Henslow decided to build across the river over in Bankside. What were some of the attractions for Henslow going to Bankside, instead of staying in Shoreditch or coming to Blackfriars or trying to, what do you think the draw of Bankside may have been? Why do you think he opted for that? Pardon? What could the, the positives of Bankside have been? Well, first of all, there's loads of space. There's not much in the way of development there. Plenty of room for another theatre, for another enterprise. What else? Think back to the city fathers and what they insisted on their rules. Hi. Well, their rules wouldn't apply Bankside. Yeah, Bankside, well away from the city of London. To us today, guys, you know, that's South London, isn't it? If you was there at this time, it would not have been considered part of London. So by coming over to Bankside, they had plenty of space, okay? They was well away of the city of London. They didn't have to worry about the city authorities, the city fathers. Basically over here, people could do what they wanted. Now, this picture is a little bit misleading because it makes Bankside look as though it's very rural, very peaceful, very green. In reality, it was a very built up area. Lots of inns, lots of taverns, lots of pubs, brothels as well. Bear baiting rings, bear baiting arenas were very popular there as well. Does anyone know what bear baiting is or was? Bear baiting and bull baiting. Why? When you get, sorry, you know what I'm yeah. when you get bears or, or what was the other one? Uh, Bull. Bulls to uh, be super aggressive and yeah. uh, basically entertain them. 
Yeah, so it's a very popular form of Elizabethan entertainment, thank you, where a wild bear was placed in a pit, uh, dogs would be set on the bear, the bear would kill, tear up all the dogs, and the audience went wild. They loved it, okay? It was a very popular form of Elizabethan entertainment. So in this area, there were pubs, inns, taverns, brothels, bull baiting arenas, bear baiting arenas. Henslow realised, ha, what is not there at the moment is a theatre. That is where he built the Rose Theatre. Now, today in London, you have got many, many bridges. Back in this period, the only way to get across to Bankside to watch a play in the Rose or to go to one of the arenas was to cross London Bridge, the old medieval London Bridge. It was basically a high street, so lots of shops, lots of houses were built on the bridge. Very busy. On one end of the bridge, heads of traitors were spiked and put on to warn anyone of committing treason against the Crown. So understandably, some people did not want to cross the bridge to Bankside. The other option was to take a ferry, so a water taxi and boat over here, over to this area. So, the Rose Theatre. 1587, the first theatre in Bankside. It's the largest of the theatres built to date, okay? And over the next few years, it becomes a huge success, actually more popular than the theatre and the curtain over in Shoreditch. And the reasons behind its success, okay? Anyone know who this is or might be on the left? What about on the right? Maybe famous actors? Yep. So here you've got Edward Alleyne, the most famous actor of his day, the most acclaimed actor of his day. And he was in charge of a group of actors called the Admiral's Men. So they came to the Rose Theatre and they became their resident theatre company. So Henslow cracked it with them. Yes, I've got the Admiral's Men as my resident theatre company. What about the guy on the right? Who might that be? Or who is it, if you know? We've got Edward Aline, and over there on the right we've got... What are you thinking at the back? Any ideas? No? Christopher Marlowe. So, Christopher Marlowe was the up-and-coming playwright of his day. Okay, very young, very radical, uh, a real groundbreaker. His plays, Dido, Queen of Carthage, Tamburlaine, The Jew of Malta, Dr. Faustus, Edward II, The Massacre of Paris, were performed at the Rose Theatre. So, during its first few years, it became a huge success because he had, Henslow had, Christopher Marlowe has his resident playwright with these amazing plays being performed, and he had the Admiral's Men and Edward Aline at the theatre performing them. So the Rose was a huge success in its early years, guys. Next theatre that came along in Bankside a couple of years later was the Swan, the Swan Playhouse. Now, this is a quite significant piece of evidence, you lot. This is an actual copy of an actual drawing of an actual Elizabethan theatre, which was the Swan. It was completed initially by this chap, a Dutch traveller called Johan de Witt. The theatre was built in 1596, not by Henslow, not by Burbage, okay? A separate company set it up. De Witt called it the finest and biggest of the London amphitheatres. 
He went there in 1597 to watch a performance. He was seated in one of the galleries watching the play. I suppose a little bit like the opposition. So if we imagine we're in this theatre, watching the stage, watching the performance. That's where he was seated. Fortunately, he took the time to sketch the interior of the Swan Theatre. The original is lost. Fortunately, though, a student of his later made a copy of that drawing and that picture has survived. So this is how we know so much about the interior, the design of these early modern theatres, everyone. It gives us a playhouse of theatre with three tiers of seating. You've got the yard down here, okay? Obviously, you've got a sizable stage. You have the Lord's Rooms as well. Here, you've got two pillars at the front of the stage holding up the roof. DeWitt made a note in his diary that the pillars looked as though they were made of marble. So the theatre designers, the theatre companies were trying to imitate the, the Greek Roman amphitheatres, okay, by having these marble looking pillars at the front of the stage. Of course they weren't made for marble, that would be far too expensive. They were gilded, they were painted to look as though they were made from marble. Now, also, as you lot probably know, all of these theatres were open air, okay? A question I get asked quite a lot, guys, is why were they open now? Why was there not a roof on these theatres? What might some of the reasons behind that be? Why did they... If they was building these buildings with this and that, stage and seats and galleries, why did they not go to the extent of including a roof? Pardon? Yeah, lighting, okay. They needed to light. Yeah, basically, that's the answer. They needed to light the stage. That was the way how they lit the plays. So the plays were performed at two o'clock, which in theory was when the sun was high in the sky. That would light the stage below. Also, of course, the inclusion of a roof on the top would be too expensive. So it saved them money as well. But also, how is this a little bit similar to how medieval theatre was, theatre before? the early modern periods, what was that like? Think back to the uh, the travelling theatre companies. Well, those were open. Yeah, those were open now, okay? Those were outdoors. So in a way, they were carrying on to an extent similar practices by performing outdoors. On the other hand, they've now got permanent buildings where people were seated and so on and so on. Uh, let's just talk about this a little bit more, this image, because it is quite interesting. Now, in terms of the seats, guys, there wasn't much of a difference in price where you sat. If you sat here, here at the top, the price was generally the same. It cost about a penny to stand down in the yard. Who do you think would have been down there standing watching plays? The poor people, okay? They could get close to the stage, they played just a penny, which today to us would be about £10. If you wanted to see, people paid an extra penny, so it was two pennies. The most expensive seats were actually ones right here, almost at the back of the stage, and these ones here above the stage. Now, I'm sure if we went to see a play, guys, and we sat somewhere like that, kind of behind the actors or right at the sides, we probably would feel a little bit dissatisfied. We might complain, what a rubbish seat, we can't really see everything that's going on. We've got a very limited view, it's a restricted view. I paid so much money for this. Why then, back then, do you think they were considered the best seats? Seats like this and seats right at the sides. 
the most expensive and the best seats. Yep. I suppose they've got a bit more shelter actually, but then so would the other people have been seated, been sheltered. Hello. Um, so would the monarchy, or if, if there was somebody important, be sitting there, so yeah. they would perform in that direction? So exactly. In reality, the person you were seeing. So yeah, the lords, the ladies, the gentlemen, okay, the, the nobility, they would go to places like this, at the sides, behind, so they could, because they could afford it, what was another reason of them sitting somewhere like that? People could look up to them, people could see them. Oh look, there's so and so, there's that lord, there's that person. They could see where they were. Yeah, they were showing off basically. They was more interested in people having a good view of them than themselves having a great view of the play. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah? In terms of the monarchy, actually, as far as we know, the king and queen never went to the theatres because they were seen as too dangerous. So although both Elizabeth and James were fans of the theatre, they never went because people were worried, oh, it might not be a suitable place for them to go, it might be a bit dangerous. So the players went to them in private and performed, okay? So, the Swan Theatre came along, the second theatre in Bankside. There was then another theatre, the third theatre on Bankside, which eclipsed the Swan, the Rose, the Curtain and the Theatre. It established itself as the most successful of the London-based theatres. Which one was that? You probably know the answer this time. The Globe, yeah. The first Globe Theatre. What year did the Globe come along? Fifth. Uh, 1599, 1630. Thank you very much. Where did you, where did you know that from? Yeah, fair enough. You, you got it from the source, that's fair enough. The Globe Theatre. So, the Globe. The first Globe Theatre. That's taken, by the way, that's a close-up, you lot, from a famous uh, panorama of London called a Vicious View of London from 1616. So this gives you a better idea of London at the time than the other one, than the John Stowe one, because you've got London Bridge, you've seen the buildings there. Yeah, it's like a high street, pretty much. Old London Bridge coming over here to Bankside, and this gives you an idea of how... Uh, how built up Bankside was at the time as well. You've got Old St Paul's Cathedral, you've got Suffolk Cathedral here as well, and you've got the various playhouses built too. You've got lots of boats, water taxis on the river. So, the first Globe Theatre, 1599. Lord Chamberlain's Men. Now, the Lord Chamberlain's Men, you lot, were based... The Lord Chamberlain's men were based at the theatre across the river. Okay, So the first theatre building, they started to work there in 1592. 1596, the lease of that building expired. The time was up. The theatre had to go and the company had to move. Because of the success of the Rose and the Swan, the Lord Chamberlain's men decided to come to Bankside and build their new theatre. Now, what they did somehow was they dismantled the theatre and they brought it over to Bankside. There is kind of a myth which circulates, which says that the Thames froze up one year and they brought the timbers over. That's probably a bit unrealistic. Yeah, it's a bit of a mystery, to be honest with you, how they got the timbers to Bankside, but they used part of the old theatre and they rebuilt it. In Bankside has the first Globe Theatre, 
okay? This is a picture of today's globe, the third globe. Although it's not the actual original globe, of course, guys, it has been built to be as close to the first one as possible. So that gives us our, the best impression we have today of how the globe appeared. So the company were the Lord Chamberlain's men. They built their own theatre, which they called the Globe. And rather than have a manager like Henslow or Burbage, they decided to run it themselves. So for the time, that was quite unique. They set up their own consortium, about 10 of them, paying 100 pounds each, and they co-owned the Globe together. Shakespeare was one of them, okay? So he became, as we know, the chief playwright of the Globe, but he also was a co-owner as well. For the time, that was quite a unique enterprise, and it made Shakespeare and his company very wealthy. And during his lifetime, anyway, that's really how Shakespeare made his money, by being part of the business of the Globe Theatre rather than just writing the plays. Because being a playwright, being an actor, wasn't that lucrative. You made much more money by being involved in the actual business. I suppose today it's the opposite, isn't it? Because obviously we've got some actors who go off and make millions of pounds of, of dollars, and writers, managers who do all the business admin but don't really make that much money. Whereas back then it was kind of the opposite. Running the theatres was how you got the money in, basically. So, now, the first globe, uh, we're not sure exactly what the first play was, but we're pretty sure, based on certain sources, that it was probably uh, Julius Caesar. We can't be sure 100%, but scholars and historians say possibly Julius Caesar, because we've got an account from a uh, Swiss tourist, and that was Thomas Platter, who travelled all over London, 21st of September, 1599, so that year that the Globe opened, a few months after, he went to the Globe and he watched the performance of Julius Caesar. Okay? And this is what he said. On September the 21st, after lunch, about two o'clock, I and my party crossed the water and there in the house with the thatched roof witnessed an excellent performance of the tragedy of the first emperor, Julius Caesar, with a cast of some 15 people. When the play was over, they danced very marvellously and gracefully together. Thus, daily at two in the afternoon, London has sometimes three plays running in different places, competing with each other, and knows which play best pertain most spectators. What does Platter's account tell us about London theatre in 1599? What were some of the key features of London theatre in that year, guys? Just some key facts, key features of it. You've yeah, so it was a competitive business. Any others? Three different theatres, three plays like competing. It was a competitive business. What else? What else jumps out? Just some key features. Yeah, thatched roof. So theatres had a thatched roof. Yeah, during the day at two o'clock. How did the plays end? Yeah, with a jig. Okay, so it didn't matter whether it was a comedy, a history, a tragedy, a romance, all the plays ended with a merry dance where all of the actors came back and did the dance. Just to show everyone, it was just a story, it was just a play, to bring audience and actors together and to leave the audience feeling happy. It was also done to, you know, in theory, banish, get rid of any ill feeling or evil spirits that might be lurking around. Okay, now Thomas Platter also talks about the structure, okay, the interior of the theatres. So he said that the playhouses are so constructed 
that they play on a raised platform so that everyone has a good view. There are different galleries and places, however, where the seating is better and more comfortable and therefore more expensive. Whoever cares to stand below, so down in the yard, only pays one English penny. If he wishes to sit, he enters by another door, whilst if he desires to sit in the most comfortable seats, which are cushions, he may not only see everything well, but can also be seen. He then pays another English penny at another door. During the performance, food and drink are carried around the audience, so that for what one cares to pay, one may also have refreshments. So, uh, there are two pictures, guys, of the interior of the Globe Theatre today, okay, in Bankside. Like I say, that is our modern day reconstruction of the Globe. We can't be 100% sure that's how the Globe was, but it is, uh, you know, the best effort of historians, archaeologists, the reconstruction team. So, to the best of our knowledge today, that is how the Globe appeared. So, Back to this date then, which I was asking about earlier on, 1603. We've gone 1567, the Red Lion, the first, you know, early Elizabethan theatre, which didn't quite work, so that was kind of scrapped. Then the theatre came along in 1576, and that was a big hit. The Curtain came along in 1577. Then 10 years later, theatre grows across the river in Bankside with the Rose, the Swan in 1595, and then it really explodes with the first globe, 1603. A little bit of a change in society, in the country. What happens? The Queen died. Yeah. Yes, the Queen was. Elizabeth I died, who became King or Queen? James. James I, yes. So, uh, Elizabeth I passed away. King James became the King of England. Now, Elizabeth I was a huge fan of the theatre. She didn't go to the theatre herself, as I said. The acting companies went to her in private at Tapton Court in the Palace of Whitehall. James, her cousin from Scotland, who became the King of England, was even more of a fan of the theatre. He loved theatre. So when he became king, one of the first things he did, one of the very first things you lot, was he changed the name of Shakespeare's company from, what were they called before? Yeah, the Lord Chamberlain's men to the King's men. Why was that such a bonus, such a plus for them? Yeah, they're being sponsored by the monarch. They're being sponsored by the King. Basically, they're more or less the official theatre company of the King of England. So that was a major change for them. This is the period where uh, Jacobean theatre starts because we've got King James as the King of England, so we've gone through the Elizabethan period, we're now in the Jacobean period, okay? So some of the plays you've done here at Mayfield, whether you did them for GCSC or A-level, Macbeth? Yeah, yeah. You were and a fellow for? Yeah, so fellow Macbeth there too. Jacobean era plays, for example, okay? You do much of, do about nothing in Twelfth Night, don't you? Yeah, so much do about nothing. That would be Elizabethan. Twelfth Night would also come under Jacobean as well. Okay. Something else that happens. The Blackfriars. What was the Blackfriars? What 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 was this again? Can you just remind me? What was what role did this play in the story? 
first indoor theatre. So James Burbage wanted an indoor theatre, didn't he? Back in 1598-1597. It didn't really work out though. Why did it not work out again? Pardon? I just didn't hear you, that's all. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, it was expensive and... Who didn't want the theatre there? People yeah, oh, yeah, the public, okay, the residents of Blackfriars. 1609, so six years after the company are the Kingsmen, they then move into their indoor theatre. So the company had that theatre going in the background, they rented it out, but 1609 they moved into it and they started to perform indoors. So for the Kingsmen, they were at the peak of their powers because they were being sponsored by the King of England, by James, and they had an indoor theatre, which was obviously fantastic because it meant they could have plays outdoors in the Globe Theatre during the summer months and spring and carry on in the winter months indoors in the Blackfriars. So, you know, for them, it, it didn't get any better, really. Uh, this is a kind of artist reconstruction of how the Blackfriars would have looked. Over here, we have got two examples of modern-day reconstructions of the Blackfriars Theatre. This one is from uh, America. I do forget where exactly. I'm going to have to check on that. But this one is also from Shakespeare's Globe. That's the indoor theatre, okay, which is based on the Blackfriars. How is that similar to, like, the Globe and the Rose and the Swan and the Theatre? but different, what changes, what similarities, what differences are there? What's changed, what's different? Um, yeah, so you've got tiers of seating, uh -huh. absolutely. People don't stand on the floor uh, Yeah, there's no yard for people to stand. There is standing areas, but they are at the top, right at the top. So it's the opposite of the Elizabethan theatres, the open air theatres anyway. So the tiers of seating is still there, but standing is no longer down in the yard, it's up there. Here, the rich people would have sat here. They would have sat here facing each other, okay? Anything else that's changed or stayed the same with the indoor theatre? Yeah, okay, it's lit by candlelight. So, candlelit performances, which meant the plays could carry on, yeah, during the winter months. It's believed that a fellow was probably written for an indoor theatre, possibly Macbeth as well, everyone. Right, the second Globe Theatre, 1614. So, the first Globe came to an end in 1613. Anyone know what happened to it? It burned down. How did it burn down? Some people think it's the Great Fire of London. That was in 1666. Wrong assumption sometimes is that, oh yeah, okay, the first globe burnt down in 1666 in the Great Fire. It was earlier in 1613, so much earlier. And also, the Great Fire was, where was that in London? Whereabouts? Where, where's the globe? Yes, it's over here, isn't it? Whereas the fire was over here. 
So it's also in the wrong part of London. Uh, what happened was, guys, let me show you, go back to the globe, it might be easier to explain. Basically, there was a performance of uh, one of Shakespeare's late plays, All Is True, which is better known to us today as Henry VIII, so a play about King Henry VIII, one of his last plays. That particular day, what the company decided to do was do something a bit special when the character of the king came onto the stage. So what they decided to do was make a sound when the character of Henry VIII came on. The play was only being performed for the third time at the Globe. The Globe Theatre was full that day, and they thought, oh, let's do this like, let's make something dramatic, like a big sound effect when he comes on, okay? So they decided to fire a cannon from inside the theatre, from this roof here, the, uh, the Trumpeter's Gallery. Now that was obviously a bad idea because the theatre was made of wood, wasn't it? Yeah? But the theatre was made of wood, unlike our theatres today, and this school and all the other buildings, they didn't have health and safety regulations, fire regulations, so they went ahead, they fired their cannon, and what happened was, you lot, a small spark caught the thatch roof, the roof caught fire and the theatre burnt down in just under two hours. So that's how the first globe was destroyed. But because the globe was such a big success, Shakespeare and his company, the Kingsmen now, just rebuilt. So they rebuilt, okay? This, let me get this right. This is quite a famous picture from Holler's long view of London down here. You've got the globe marked on here, and here you've got bear baiting, which means that that's a bear baiting arena but that's actually quite a famous mistake. So that's the Second Globe Theatre, and that's the Bear Baiting Arena. Does that make sense? So they was put on the wrong way during the printing process. So that is actually a picture of the Second Globe Theatre from the outside, made in about 1647, based on Holler's visit to London in, 16, in the 1640s. What they did the second time around they made it a lot more elaborate and expensive, so inside it was more impressive, but they got rid of the factory if they had a toll roof instead because they didn't want to risk another fire. Now, Shakespeare uh, probably did not work at the Second Globe. The general theory, guys, is that when the first Globe Theatre burned down, he took that as his cue to retire, to call it a day and go back to Stratford-upon-Avon, which, of course, was his hometown. He'd been slowing down more and more. He was writing more and more with other people. So the general theory is that he called it quits and he went back to Stratford and he died in 1616, just two years after the Second Globe. But that carried on for many, many years, okay? With the work of Shakespeare's plays and other playwrights of the time. 1642, however, massive turning point. All of the theatres in the London area are closed at the outbreak of the English Civil War. Why do you think this happened? Because the theatres were so successful, yeah, the Rose, the Globe especially, and so on, such a success. Why do you think Parliament, government, closed all of the theatres from the 6th of uh, September, 1642? Yeah, so they was worried that plays would start uprisings and rebellions that they would cause trouble. There was quite rowdy places anyway. We're typically used to going to a plane being very 
quiet, very calm, very hushed. Back then, it was a bit more like a football match, you could say. So it was, it was quite, you know, a boisterous place to be. Yet, they was afraid of attacks and riots. They, you know, generally disapproved of kind of the behaviour at theatres. They thought theatres were malls. They thought, no, no, we can't allow these type of houses, these places to carry on during the Civil War, thank you very much. So they was all closed in 1642, sadly. The Second Globe Theatre, that carried on uh, for a very short time, but eventually that was demolished in 1644. That was the end of them. Now, I'm just going to make a massive leap in time, quickly, just before we finish. Coming forwards in time to about 1949, American actor Sam Wanamaker, very passionate fan of Shakespeare, very experienced Shakespearean performer and actor, comes to London that year to make a film and he decides to visit where the globe was. Okay, he's so passionate about Shakespeare, he loves Shakespeare and so on, he thinks, oh, well, I'm in London, I've got to see the globe. What's there? So he goes to the original site and that's all he found, just a plaque saying that he stood the globe playhouse. So he was incredibly disappointed he thought there was going to be some kind of, you know, memorial to Shakespeare, some kind of theatre, and he felt, no, London needs something more than that. It needs a new rebuilt globe theatre. So he dedicated the rest of his life to rebuilding the globe. During the project, the Rose Theatre, okay, was also uh, discovered and partially excavated. So in 1989, guys, 5% of the first globe was dug up, two-thirds of the rose was uncovered okay one-third of it is still covered up hopefully one day in the future the rest of it will be excavated as well and plans are in place to develop the rose like the globe so it can be used for performance and education and exhibition but i just wanted to finish with that because thanks to you know sam wanamaker and his work we've now got a rebuilt globe theater which i'm guessing quite a few of you have been to haven't you from trips. Did you go for playing Shakespeare? Yeah. For much ado. I think. So. Uh, the much ado about nothing you saw was that would have been the uh, playing Shakespeare project, which the Globe do every year. So, what they do every year, the Globe invites people, uh, students from secondary schools, inside and outside London to attend a performance for free. I think next year's one is a Midsummer's Night's Dream. I think they tweeted that just last night. So it's largely thanks to, to Sam Wanamaker, guys, that we, we not only know so much about uh, early modern theatre, but we can actually go to a place like the Globe and enjoy a play in a theatre similar to what Shakespeare and his contemporaries would have would have understood, would have realised. Thank you so much for listening, you lot. If any of you have got any questions or would like any further reading about these, this topic or things related, you can always email me or find me at age 12.